Hi, friends. I'm Kaylin. And I'm Logan. And this is Bones, a true crime podcast. The case we have for you this week is wild. We're going to talk about the Pike County Massacre. When we first heard this case, we listened to the investigative podcast titled The Pike to Massacre. I highly, highly, highly recommend following them if you want to listen to a deep dive on the case. They literally have four seasons about this one case. We're not going to give you every little detail, so there's a lot in there that you'll want to hear. But this is just more of an overview of the case. For pictures and information related to this week's case, you can follow us on Instagram at Bones, a true crime pod, like our Facebook page, Bones, a true crime podcast. Or you can email us with any questions or case suggestions at bonesatruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to add our podcast to your feed on whichever podcasting app you prefer. Ratings and reviews are much appreciated. Now let's dive in. So Piketon is a small town located in Pike County, Ohio. It reminded me a lot of the small communities in our area. Everyone knows everybody. There are large extended families that are very tight-knit, and many of the people involved grew up together. So even though everyone in this case isn't related, they are like family, and some of the families kind of intertwine. The community isn't the only reason it reminded me of our small towns, though. Most Piketon residents live in extreme poverty, and they have to pick up side jobs or live with each other for financial help. So parents might live with their children for extended amounts of time or siblings might live together or whatever just to help with rent costs or mortgage payments. Most people around here have more than one job, kind of like in Pike County. Even if it's not for another company, people will like split wood, mow yards or do whatever just to make ends meet or have a little extra spending money. In Pike County, the residents struggle to make ends meet and have to work hard for their money. One thing that I really was shocked to find was that there are a lot of undereducated people in Pike County. One in four adults don't have a high school diploma. This was really shocking to me. I know it used to be more common for people to not finish high school, but I feel like that isn't the case anymore. I could just be really naive to other regions, but I just know it's not really common in our area for people to not graduate high school. I wonder if this is because they were just such an impoverished community that kids quit school to go to work early. Um, We'll also see that kids had kids young, so it could have been something that they had to do. Manual labor jobs don't always require a high school education either, so that could have been the case. I wonder, too, if it has anything to do with the young ages that these kids are getting married and having babies. I felt like I was married really young because we were only 18 and 21. One of our victims that we're going to introduce to you later, Hannah, planned her first pregnancy at just 15. There are a lot of names in today's case because there are so many victims and extended family members involved. I'll try to keep it as simple as I can, so let's just get started. On April 21st of 2016, the Roden and Gilly families went to sleep not knowing that some of their loved ones would never wake up again. These families had eight members shot and killed execution style in their own homes on the night of April 21st in the early hours of the 22nd. As if that wasn't horrific enough, their small children were sleeping beside them. There were three children present at the time of the murders and the only survivors at the scene. The murdered victims involved are Chris Roden Sr., age 40, Kenneth Roden, age 44, Gary Roden, age 38, 
Dana Roden, age 37, Clarence or Frankie Roden, age 20, Hannah May Roden, age 19, Christopher Roden Jr., age 16, and Hannah Hazel Gilly, age 20. While the names we just listed are the people who were killed during this tragedy, there are a number of other victims that are still suffering today because of these deaths, including the sweet babies who lost their parents while sleeping next to them. If you listen to the podcast we mentioned or watch any of the interviews with family members, you can see that they are just as distraught today as they were seven years ago when these murders occurred. Chris Roden Sr., who we mentioned was only 40 years old at the time of his death, worked as a carpenter at Big Bear Family Resort in Lucasville. Chris was married for 22 years to Dana, who was 37, but they actually divorced before the murders. Even though the couple divorced, they apparently still had a pretty good relationship. Chris Sr. actually bought a trailer for Dana to put on his property just so they could both be close to their kids and grandkids. Dana was a hard worker and worked as a nurse's aide in the community. She reportedly worked all the time, but on her days off, she would even go back and see the residents at the nursing home. Dana and the children attended a local church for a while, and that was really something that the pastor remembered about Dana. Her work ethic stuck out. Chris and Dana had three children together. Clarence, who we're going to call Frankie, was only 20 years old and a new dad again. Frankie had a three-year-old and a six-month-old son. Hannah was the only daughter at just 19 years old with two baby girls of her own. Hannah's oldest was two years old and her youngest was just days old. Chris Jr. was only 16 years old and the baby of the family. Frankie was engaged to Hannah Hazel Gilly, who was 20 years old, and we're just going to call her Hazel to avoid the confusion between the two Hannahs. Hazel was only the mother of Frankie's six-month-old, but still took care of the three-year-old like he was hers. Frankie reportedly had full custody of his three-year-old son, so he was with them all the time. The mother of Frankie's first son was still involved in his life, and she would actually get custody of him later. Kenneth was Chris Sr.'s older brother, and Gary was their cousin. Gary was staying with Chris Sr. the night of the murders. They were more like brothers than cousins, so it wasn't uncommon for Gary to hang out at Chris's house, but he didn't live there. Gary very well could have been collateral damage because he was the only family member who didn't live in the residence that he was murdered at. The victims were all found in four separate trailers at two locations near Piketon on April 22nd of 2016. All four trailers were owned by Chris Sr. I want to remind y'all that even though Chris Sr. and Dana were divorced, she still lived in a trailer close to all of the other family members. So three of the trailers were Chris Sr.'s immediate family. The Rodens were a very close family, so the kids bounced back and forth comfortably between their parents' houses. Hannah was the little princess, and Chris reportedly spoiled her rotten. Frankie, Hazel, and their two children were living right next to Frankie's parents and siblings. On a map, you can tell it's all within walking distance. I already mentioned Chris Sr. and his cousin Gary were found in Chris's trailer, but Chris actually didn't have any of his children at his house the night of the murders. So Dana, Hannah, Hannah's baby, and Chris Jr. were all found in Dana's trailer. Dana was shot four times. Hannah was shot twice. It was so chaotic that the morning the bodies were found, they actually didn't even see Chris Jr. when they first searched the scenes. When they finally found Chris Jr., he was found shot in the head four times. 
Chris Sr.'s brother, Kenneth, would be found seven hours later than the other victims when his family wasn't able to contact him regarding the tragedy. Kenneth was the only victim found in a separate location, and he was covered in dollar bills. Kenneth was found by his cousin, Donald Stone. So I'm going to backtrack a little and tell you about how the victims were found. On the morning of April 22nd of 2016, Bobby Joe Manley, Dana's sister, went to Chris Sr.'s house. Bobby was helping her ex-brother-in-law to feed the dogs. Bobby found it odd that Chris Sr.'s truck was still in the driveway, so Bobby Joe entered the house and found Chris Sr. and Gary were both dead inside the trailer. Bobby Joe called the police before she and a friend checked the nearby trailer of Clarence, who were referring to as Frankie Roden. You can find and listen to this 911 call online. The two found Frankie and his fiance Hazel Gilly dead with their two children still in the house. Frankie's three-year-old son was found wandering around the house covered in blood. The little three-year-old boy thought his daddy was playing zombies like on The Walking Dead. That's just a really horrific detail to me and something that will probably haunt this baby forever. Spoiler alert, but the killers are found and convicted. Frankie's son will actually give a victim statement in the trials, and you can find that online too. His mom says that he will still hardly talk about the incident and experiences frequent nightmares from this time in his life. I can't imagine how hard it has to be as a mom trying to help your son cope with such a tragedy. Bobby and Dana's brother, James, found Dana and Hannah dead in Dana's trailer. Hannah's newborn daughter was also found in her bed, covered in blood. She was taken by ambulance to the hospital, but she was free of injuries. She was just covered in her mother's blood. Police found Hannah's two-year-old daughter that she had with Jake Wagner unharmed at the Wagner household. I know it's never easy losing a loved one, but can you imagine losing eight while still trying to be there for the children and figure out what y'all will do with them? We'll find out later, as you'd expect from a tight-knit family. The Roden family fought to care for these kids and will potentially maintain custody of them. I mean, they wouldn't be able to get anything out of the houses for the kids. So while being totally distraught, you'd have to run to the store just to get the necessities like diapers, baby wipes, formula at the bare minimum. I can't even imagine the time and the money that went into planning so many funerals on top of that. Yeah, so I also cannot imagine having to deal with that many deaths in the family all at once. like. Planning one funeral is hard enough. I can't imagine planning eight funerals. And also, like, who does that responsibility fall on? I mean, eight You'll people see, out of their immediate family are gone. Like, who even takes over at that point? You know what I mean? And you'll see that it had a really, really bad effect on the, like, the matriarchy of the family, um, Chris Sr.'s mother. She just, you can tell it's really weighed on her and she's had a hard time coping with all of that, as you can imagine. At the beginning of the investigation, authorities were puzzled. I mentioned earlier that the police originally couldn't find Chris Jr. They thought maybe he was staying elsewhere, maybe he committed the murder and then ran, or maybe he was able to escape and was still hiding. All of these theories would quickly be laid to rest when his body was discovered, though. Investigators were back to square one, trying to decide what the motive was behind these killings. The Roden family had the smallest glimmer of hope that maybe one of the children of Chris and Dana survived just to have it taken away. They all knew Chris Jr. would never commit an act like this, but the police had to explore every avenue until they found him. 
The sheriff of the county was so puzzled about the motives, he actually told his residents, if you're fearful, arm yourself. The investigators would receive 800 tips and conduct 400 interviews that first year after the murders. One theory that was thrown around was the Mexican cartel. This actually reminded me of the Howell County episode we're putting together because the cartel has been thrown around in theories regarding those missing people and even several others in our area. The reason the cartel theory was thrown around was because of Chris Sr.'s side hustle. There were hundreds of illegal marijuana plants growing on the property that would have brought hundreds of thousands of dollars in for the family. So this case took back in 2016, but the marijuana problem in Pike County was extreme. The families relied on it to make ends meet. They didn't grow it for their own use, but they needed the income. According to the Metro, since 2008, police and state agents have seized more marijuana in Pike County than in all of the state's counties, except one. 27,614 plants were destroyed just in Pike County. The one county with more seizures was called Muskingum, and they had 32,021 plants uprooted. So for reference, each plant is worth like $1,000 when mature. I didn't find exactly how many plants Chris had, but it seemed like a lot just from the way people talked. Many people said if the cartel was involved, they wouldn't have hesitated to shoot the children too, though. How do authorities even destroy marijuana plants? Because they can't burn them. And if they did, wouldn't everybody get high? I don't know. I'm literally asking. I feel like maybe, maybe they spray them with like, you know, weed killer. Okay, maybe. Or maybe weed killer that makes sense they they seize them and then use them for their own personal use i feel like that's probably illegal but maybe (laughs) i mean you never know i can't even keep my 20 dollar tomato plant alive so that'd be a lot of pressure to keep a thousand dollar plant alive an unidentified clinician from the area actually compared having a marijuana plant to having a tomato plant because they're so common The terrain and lack of officials to cover the area make it an optimal location. I also read that a lot of these plants uplifted belonged to the Mexican cartel. I don't know how they can tell who plants belong to, but I guess there must be some way. It makes sense to me why these beginning theories were that these murders had something to do with marijuana and potentially their connection to the Mexican cartel. I mean, an entire family was wiped out living on a property with a large marijuana operation going on. After further digging, it appeared that there were other theories to consider. Many of the tips investigators received would actually lead back to Chris Sr.'s daughter, Hannah Roden. So I'm going to give you some backstory on her life specifically. Hannah Roden was only 13 years old when she started dating 17-year-old Jake Wagner. They planned the pregnancy with Hannah's oldest daughter and were engaged to be married on August 27th of 2015. Hannah was 15 at the time of this pregnancy, which is crazy to me. Not because she was pregnant at that time, because that happens, but just that it was planned and they were like excited to expect this baby. I would not have been excited at 15, but I also could barely like keep up with myself at 15. Like my yeah, mom I still take did care everything. Of <laughs> the two had tattooed rings and Hannah had an engagement ring, but they split up in March of 2015 before their wedding day could even come. The two continued a romantic relationship until at least September of 2015, but they were supposedly both seeing other people too. 
Hannah's second daughter was not fathered by Jake Wagner, but she did get pregnant during the time they were seeing each other. Hannah was very clear to Jake that he was not the father, but he and his mother insisted on a DNA test anyways. There's your first red flag for Angela, Jake's mom. The second child was proven to be fathered by Charlie Gilly. I believe Charlie is actually Hazel's brother. And just a recap, Hazel is the one that was murdered that was engaged to Frankie, Hannah's brother. When Jake found out he was not the father, Jake still begged Hannah to let him raise the baby as his own. Hannah did not allow him that opportunity. Hannah was in a relationship with Corey Holdren at the time of her death. She was ready to move on with her life and be done with Jake. Her oldest daughter was only two years old and her youngest barely a week old. After Hannah's death, Jake Wagner actually attempted to get custody of the newborn so that he could raise the sisters together. Members of the Wagner family included George Billy Wagner III, who was 46 years old at the time of the murders, and that's Jake's father. Angela Wagner was 46 years old also at the time of the murder, and that is his mother. George Wagner IV, age 25, is Jake's older brother. And then Edward Jake Wagner was 23 years old and was the baby of the family. Rita Newcomb, age 73, is also going to be brought up in this case. She is Angela's mother. Billy and Angela Wagner were Jake's parents. George was Jake's older brother. Rita was one of the two grandmothers of Jake's that would be charged. Rita was Angela's mom. Does that all, are we clear there? Does that make sense? Yes, I think. (laughs) The Wagner family was basically a cult. The way they operated and justified their actions is like nothing I've ever seen or heard of before. Billy and Angela Wagner thought they were A-plus parents. They had a hold on their boys, Jake and George, like I've never seen before. Jake and George each have one child, but no women in their lives, for obvious reasons. Hannah, Jake's ex-fiance, left the chaos and moved back home when they broke up. George Wagner was actually married and then later divorced, but as soon as his wedding day was over, his wife was isolated. Tabitha Clater, George's ex-wife, claims she was no longer allowed to see or talk to her family who she had once been so close to. Just eight months after the wedding, Tabitha became pregnant with their son. As soon as he was born, his grandmother Angela took over, though. The baby slept in Angela and Billy Wagner's room from the first day that he came home, despite Tabitha's objections. George would always side with his parents and dismiss Tabitha's concerns. At the end of each day, Angela would actually kick Tabitha out of her room with George so that Angela could scratch his back and talk to him about his day. Tabitha and George were only allowed to have sex for reproduction or they were told it was a sin. Angela made sure that there wasn't any sneaking around by making Tabitha sleep in a different room. Tabitha ran away from the Wagner family home when her son was only two years old. Tabitha returned to her family, but she basically lost her right to be a mother to her son at the time because Angela was not giving him up. The family bullied and tricked her into signing over all of her rights. She didn't understand what she was doing when she signed the papers, and she fought it from that time on. Can you imagine coming home from the hospital like freshly postpartum and someone just taking your baby? I would literally lose my mind. You're so like vulnerable at that time and just so attached. I can't imagine. 
Yeah, uh, that would be crazy. And then the fact that she literally had to like run away from the house just to get away. Yeah. And when you listen to the other podcast, she tells you how she did it. She literally like hid under vehicles and made a break for town. She ended up going to a gas station and I think she had to use a payphone to call her family. Um, it was a very crazy story. Angela and Billy messed up their kids from the start, so it's no surprise when they all turned out crazy. The family homeschooled their children, and before I get into that, I want to preface this by saying that I am 100% pro-homeschool. I actually hope this podcast takes off so it's easier for me to homeschool our kids. But the Wagners did not. They did. I don't think what they did was called homeschooling. I don't know what it was. The Wagners wanted to homeschool their boys just so that they could control them. They were sending their kids to the School of Hard Knocks, apparently, because they covered everything you need to teach your child to become a criminal. Billy and Jake were taught to pick locks, steal vehicles, steal livestock, and commit insurance fraud. Multiple times, the Wagners would burn down their houses or vehicles for insurance money. When the boys were old enough to start working, they had no control over their money. They still lived at home in the same house as their parents. And their income went directly to Billy and Angela. Billy and Angela would decide how it was best for the family to spend their money. Billy's parents were very well off and seemed to have started this mess. So they were known for helping people in the community, but it was always for their own benefit. So they may help someone like buy a house, but then when that house was almost paid off, they would take it from the person that they helped. So really, it was like someone else paid the mortgage and... They just got the house at the end. Billy's mother, Frederica, was actually charged for buying the boys and the family bulletproof vests. Billy clung to his mother similarly to the way that his children had an abnormal relationship with their mother, Angela. I want to say that Billy's father, George, died shortly after the arrests, but I can't remember if that's right. After the murders, the Wagner family moved to Alaska and then back to Pike County. Jake supposedly moved because he wanted to protect his daughter from the horrors that had occurred in their small town. His daughter was conveniently staying with him the night of the murders, so she thankfully didn't have to witness that tragedy. While in Alaska, Jake Wagner began dating and eventually married a new woman, Elizabeth Armour. The couple met at a church the Wagner family began attending when they moved into town in 2017. Elizabeth believed that the Wagners weren't involved in the murders and married Jake in 2018. Elizabeth, like the other women, was isolated from her family and suffered immense mental abuse. She quickly noticed the family was obsessed with following the state of the investigation, though she wasn't allowed to be involved in the conversations. Angela did not like Elizabeth. She didn't want her in the family circle. Which, honestly, who would want to be a part of their family? But Angela thought it was some prize, apparently. Angela also didn't want Elizabeth to develop a relationship with Hannah and Jake's daughter. So she accused Elizabeth of of sexually assaulting the little girl. Angela is so weird and obsessed with her grandchildren. She doesn't want to be the grandmother. She wants to be the mother. I also mentioned how weird she is with her boys and controlling of their sex lives. She's really messed up, and she also had that same power over this relationship with Jake and Elizabeth. Angela knew that claims of sexual abuse would get Jake wound up, so she manipulated him to turn against his wife. Jake sided with Elizabeth to Angela's face, but privately made dire threats to her and her family if this was true. This was the quote from Elizabeth's trial. Logan, do you care to read this? 
Yes. So Elizabeth is quoted saying, he said it out very clearly to me that if I had done it, the right thing to do would to be create Lucille, the baseball bat from the walking dead and string me up in the barn, then beat me to death with the baseball bat, bulldoze the barn, burn it down and then hunt down and kill my family. Jake also threatened to kill any of her family members that attempted to visit them in Ohio. Elizabeth was terrified of the family and made secret plans for her father to save her. She changed clothes in a Walmart, slid out the back door where her father was waiting in a rental car. They took rural roads, changed cars, and sent Elizabeth to Virginia with a friend. The Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation agents were also there. They followed Elizabeth and her father until they determined that she was safe. Two and a half years after the brutal slaying of the Roden family, in November of 2018, there was finally an arrest. So this was just shortly after the escape of Elizabeth. There were at least 22 charges being filed against the Wagner family. Billy, Angela, Jake, George, Billy's mother, and Angela's mother were all facing charges. Angela's mom actually eventually pled guilty for forging documents. Angela's mom was the notary that helped the Wagner family forge custody documents. Billy's mother, I think, escaped her charges. Yeah, I think you're right. It lays it all out like charge-wise and trial-wise really well in that investigative podcast. Yeah, it does. Angela's mother was the first, but not the last, to take a plea deal. On April 22nd of 2021, Jake Wagner pleaded guilty to five of the eight murders. The conditions to his plea were that the death penalty would be taken off the table for his entire family. This is something that brought mixed reactions from the victims' families. Some were very upset that the Wagners would never have their chance to be sentenced to death. I know that this has to be tough, but I do understand you have to do what you have to do to secure a conviction. In the fall of 2021, Angela decided to take a plea deal. She will serve 30 years in prison with the hope of getting to see her grandchildren again one day. Angela did not pull the trigger, but she was very involved in the murders, so I don't feel like they were hard enough on her. I also think she must be delusional if she believes her grandchildren will want anything to do with her after what she did to their mothers. Both Jake and Angela had to testify against Billy and George under the conditions of their plea agreement. George Wagner did not follow the lead of his mother and brother. George continued to plead not guilty. After a three-month trial and less than a day of deliberation, George was found guilty on all counts of murder on November 30th. Thank goodness he did not pull the jury. It seems like everyone was in agreement that George did not pull the trigger, but he was still involved and present at the time of the murders. He made no attempt to stop this tragedy, just as Angela didn't. George was sentenced to eight life sentences without the possibility of parole for the eight murders. George was sentenced to 121 years in prison for the other charges that he faced. So if I remember correctly, in the other podcast, it kind of goes more into detail as to what his involvement in the murders were. And I know that he said kind of from the get from the get go, he didn't pull the trigger. He was there for every murder. He witnessed every murder. He helped hide um, the murder weapons. But he was mainly there because he feared for his own brother, Jake's life because he was afraid that his own father was going to kill him after all of the murders were committed. Oh yeah. I remember that. I think that 
Angela was like, I don't know, more like the brains behind the operation. Like she planned it all out, wanted it to all happen. And I really, I'm not justifying what the boys did because they were old enough to make their own choices. But I think that they were just raised in this mentality of doing what their parents said. And they were so scared of them that they just did it. They didn't even, that was just life, which Jake isn't very remorseful at all. And I don't think George is either, but a lot of people testified that they didn't like Jake, but that George was actually a good person and they really liked him. But then you would also have conflicting testimonies like from the mother of his child that he was not a great person. So I don't know. It's really, I'm sure everybody, there's two sides to everything. So I'm sure that some of those people probably just didn't see the bad side of him. Um, right. Whereas the mother of his child literally lived with them. So she, she got to see both. Billy Wagner's trial is not set to take place until early 2024. But as of now, he's sticking with the plea of not guilty. I kind of wonder if he's going to change this plea after seeing how it worked out for his son, George. Um, it's clear that he was behind the planning and execution of these murders. So it can't work out any better than it did for George. I also just want to mention how awful it is that the family is going to have this entire event drug out for almost a decade by the time Billy is tried for his role in these murders. I know they will have to live with this forever. I just can't imagine the wounds that are broken open every time they have to sit through another day in court or testify. They have spent so much time fighting for justice. I can't imagine how their lives will change when it's finally over. The Wagner family had plans in place for revenge against anyone who spoke against them. This included their regular friends or family, but it also included the sheriff and attorney general of Pike County. The Wagner family also had plans for an escape, which was really dumb because there goes their chance at a bond, but their escape plans, I wouldn't say really were that great anyways. They were just going to like doze into the building and let everybody go out. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> they, I really, laugh. <laughs> they really were not that intelligent, but they think they were a one. They really thought that they committed the perfect crime. Angela was active in planning the murders, babysitting the children, and purchasing the supplies that the men would need to slay the entire family. I haven't mentioned it yet, but Angela actually had all of the passwords to social media for her children and their previous relationships. So she used these to spy on everyone in their lives and to keep up with what was actually going on. Hannah was getting advice from George's ex-wife, Tabitha, when it came to the custody of Hannah and Jake's daughter. Tabitha told Hannah, do not sign any papers that they give you, no matter what they say. Tabitha told her how she wasn't even allowed to see her son on holidays. Hannah responded that they would have to kill her before she would give up custody of their daughter. The Wagner family took this statement literally. They immediately started planning the murder of Hannah, but they knew they couldn't just murder Hannah. Her family wouldn't give up finding what happened to Hannah or let the Wagners have the little girl without a fight. The Wagners wanted to eliminate any chance of sharing that baby girl. Chris Sr. and Billy Wagner were actually friends and grew up together. Jake knew the schedule of the Roden family because he was still very involved in Hannah's life. Just days before the murder, Angela and Jake actually visited Hannah in the hospital with her new baby, knowing what was about to happen. After Jake shot Hannah, he actually placed the baby at her breast in case she got hungry before the bodies were discovered. I breastfed both of my boys and donated tons of milk, so this is a detail that stuck with me from the first time I heard it. It makes me so sick to think of her newborn baby girl laying there crying all night long with nobody to comfort her, 
and probably rooting around, but it's not like they can just latch easily. I cannot imagine that. I remember when I first listened to the podcast on this case, I had just had Ridley. I was breastfeeding and I heard that detail and literally almost never listened to the podcast again. Like I was telling you and my mom, I remember we were discussing it and you're like, oh my gosh, it's so crazy. Like you need to go on. And I had to like wait a couple of days and just make myself listen to it because I like was not in the right headspace, obviously just having baby at that time to even listen to what happened to these poor, innocent children. Like, yes, their lives were spared, but they're never going to be the same. It doesn't matter that the baby was five days old. Like she's going to know what happened to her mom and what happened to her whole family. And she really has no family left. I mean, her dad's in jail. Well, and the Wagner family think that they did these kids a favor by sparing their lives, but they took their closest family members and left them with more trauma than most adults can fathom. I cannot imagine. I mean, they even say when you're little, like trauma changes your brain chemistry and things like that. I don't know. I'm not like super educated in that area, but I can't imagine the trauma and the therapy that they're going to have to go through to cope with that. Or even how it might affect the sister's relationship growing up. The oldest little girl could get blamed for their whole family being murdered, even though it's not her fault. Like people cope differently and she could even blame herself. Right. But yeah, that's all I have for you. There's so much more information we could have covered and so much more we could have told about. But we're not an investigative podcast. And I feel like you can find out that information from the Pike Town um, Massacre podcast that we mentioned. And it's just a really good, good way to give them the credit that they deserve for all the work they put into it. Yes, I agree. It's a great podcast. You should definitely listen to it. All right. So we will be back next week. Uh, make sure you follow us on our socials. Give us reviews. Go enter our giveaway for a shirt if you want a free t-shirt. Um, basically, everything you can find at Bones, a true crime podcast. Um, our email is bones, a true crime podcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is bones, a true crime pod. Mm-hmm.